This is Bloomberg Business Week. Insight from the reporters and editors who bring you America's most trusted business magazine. Plus, global business, finance, and tech news as it happens. Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. It's week 59, working from home. Tim, we were both in the office again this week, but uh, I got to say it was a jam-packed week. Lots of big tech earnings. We had a presidential address to Congress, a Fed meeting, and a conditional easing of mask wearing in the United States. It also feels like more and more people are starting to go into the office totally. and really be around New York City as vaccinations increase and more and more people start feeling comfortable. Just a bit going on, right? Yeah. Next couple of hours, too. We got a lot going on from Costco to healthcare to Uber and Lyft, passing out bonuses to drivers. And the baseball great who struck out when it came to video games. It's all in a new book, and we get a little clip of it. Uh, plus, we're going to talk about some fun with toys. That's been a plus for Mattel. We've definitely seen that as a pandemic play in the last 12 months. We're going to check in with the company's CEO. Well, not so much fun for Walmart Mm-mm. workers who just want a higher minimum wage. Why the U.S.'s largest private employer puts up such a fight. Also, the real estate developer and investor turned crypto entrepreneur weighs in on both. That's Kent Swig of Swig Equities. He's a favorite guest of ours. All of that to come. We begin, though, with this week's double issue of Bloomberg Business Week magazine. It's now on newsstands, online, and, of course, always on the Bloomberg Terminal. The cover story is about President Biden and the challenges to come. It's a rather timely story considering President Biden's address to uh, Congress this week. For a look at that story and some other highlights in the current issue, we checked in with Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber. When you look at what um, he's accomplished in in just a remarkably short period of time, um, beating his own goals and then increasing his own goal for number of vaccinations, um, probably on the brink of another goal in terms of uh, reopening schools, uh, passage of a $1.9 trillion stimulus, like pretty historic run here to start a, a presidency. But as Josh Wingrove and Nancy Cook write in the story, like everything else is about to get more difficult for him. Mm. And that affects not only the American economy, but also the shape of things to come for the rest of the world. There's also a story in this issue by Peter Coy, Stefan Nicola and David Rocks about the Super League that was going to be. Yeah, my, my little uh, phrase for it is the Super League supernova. It like, came and went before you even really <laughs> yeah. like blinked, right? So, but you know, I think the story that it's rocked Europe, it speaks to sort of this business model that I don't think people appreciated actually maybe how broken it was, where you have these leagues that are basically levered up and, and with debt and don't really have a chance to to like break out of that and and find a way that's profitable and the pandemic has really weighed on them um and you know of course you brought in um some american ingenuity to a european model and it just totally broke down ingenuity is one word for it (laughs) yeah exactly It, it really broke down quickly and what it means for the future of the beautiful game is something that i think we we sort of hint at and you know, no one really knows here, but it does make you wonder if there could be a more fan-centric model mm-hmm. going forward. And obviously, Germany has some examples of how that can can look. Um, you know, you, everyone holds the Green Bay Packers in high esteem here. It makes you wonder if there isn't more of a fan-based model that could come out of this. You know, Peter Atwater over at uh, William & Mary has been corresponding back and forth with me, and we were talking about what happened in soccer, uh, and he said, it's kind of reflective of the K-shaped recovery of like the owners, the top leg, 
you know, the fans, the the bottom leg. And it's just like, you've got to understand there's this big gap and people are fighting back on that lower leg, you know, leg of the K. And it's just kind of reflective more broadly uh, of what's going on in the economy. Yeah, it, it, yeah, it is. And it also, I mean, funny enough, it speaks to like, you know, shareholder capital where, yeah. where you're, you're, you're um, you've got, you know, fans and the fans are what it makes the whole thing work. Like mm-hmm. they're the ones who pay for ticket sales, that buy the merchandise, that fill the stadiums and, Suddenly, when they're the ones that feel like you know they're getting the cold shoulder, the whole thing yeah. falls apart. And I think that that is a really important thing for all of us to kind of keep in mind in, in, at this moment in capitalism and the pandemic and everything else. Well, speaking of the pandemic, there's a piece in the issue that really made me think differently about what the other side of the pandemic looks like. It's about herd immunity. It's called Herd Immunity is Humanity's Great Hope. It's Proving Elusive by Robert Langrith and Emma Court. And it, it plays with the idea that the, this 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 herd immunity concept that we've become so attuned to over the last year might not be the best way for us to measure the end of the pandemic. Yeah, it's kind of a scary article, yeah. to be honest with you. It was terrifying. And, and we, made, yeah. <laughs> we made it the, the remarks because I just found, so first story in the issue, because I found it to be um, a rather cold shower. And here we are, um, uh, you know, a year and change into the pandemic, and herd immunity has been this idea that feels like this great hope that everybody is like, you know, look, like vaccines, all, you know, the number of uh, hundreds of thousands and millions of Americans who have, have had to fight with COVID at this point, like it's all for something. We're going to get to this herd immunity moment and, you know, we'll have this kind of safety blanket, except that it's turning out that no one exactly knows when, what percent of population yeah. needs to have either inoculations or exposure to reach herd immunity. And, you know, it started like <laughs> like a year ago, it was like 30%, maybe 40%. Then suddenly the number became 75 or 80%. <laughs> now the government isn't even like using those numbers. Like no one knows what percentage of the population needs to have its, uh, exposure or inoculation in order to reach herd immunity, yeah. which basically means that any sense of normality that we think herd Im- immunity might provide is probably kind of distant. One thing we talked a lot about this week, Carol, and last week too, is that even though things are looking really good here in the U.S. and a handful of countries, we're really in the minority of of turning the corner when it comes to the global pandemic. India, the numbers Mm -hmm. just keep getting worse and worse. Right. And that uh, is something we need to keep in mind, that this is a global pandemic. We can't get beyond it until we eradicate it everywhere. That, of course, was Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, more on herd immunity. We're going to also talk about COVID variants. We're going to do that with Dr. Josh Sharfstein over at Johns Hopkins. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. So every day, Tim, you know, we do a daily check on COVID-19. We do also what's going on with the vaccine rollout. And while things are definitely improving in the United States, we even had the president talk about us kind of moving beyond it. Uh, This as he marked his first 100 days in office. We also had Mayor Bill de Blasio of New York City talking about fully reopening New York City on July 1st. We know that globally, I think about India in particular, it's still a tough time. Yeah, it's a, it's a different story. I think the conversation is also going to continue to move from what we're doing here in the United States on uh, behalf of the American people for vaccine distribution to what the U.S. is doing on behalf of the world to help get the world vaccinated. Another big part of this has to do with the CDC and right. the changing CDC guidance that we saw this week when it comes to people wearing masks or not wearing masks outdoors. The other 
other thing, listen, all of our conversations has to do with variants. And the new variant is thought to be fueling India's deadlier new wave of cases that has made it the world's second worst hit country. And that is something we talked about a lot with all of our uh, guests when it came to uh, COVID-19. And that included Dr. Josh Sharfstein over at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, of course, supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP, parent of Bloomberg Radio. Here's our conversation. I want to start right in with the New York City news. July 1st, full opening. Uh, Is that a realistic day or is it too much too soon? Well, it depends what you mean by full opening. Uh, Obviously, um, things are looking better and that means that we can do more more, uh, safely. Um, But I'm sure he doesn't mean going all the way back to 2019 and pretending like the pandemic didn't happen. Um, I think it's gonna be important particularly for people who are not vaccinated to be careful and to, you know, wear masks when they're close to other people. And uh, I think there's still going to be some prudent uh, precautions necessary. What's your guidance to all of us who may have been already vaccinated? And so as we go about our world, I know I still feel comfortable wearing a mask just about everywhere uh, out in public and certainly at our office. What's your guidance to everyone? Well, I think we're starting to see certainly the recommendations for outside change. People who are vaccinated can feel pretty comfortable outside unless they're, you know, completely crowded together with a lot of people breathing on them um, in like a crowd. But um, and then, you know, indoors, I think people will start to get more confident, particularly where they know that other people are vaccinated around them. Um, And uh, I think that the real difference will be when the rates of transmission and the cases in the community go way down. Because, you know, even if you're vaccinated, you can still get sick. And we've seen cases like that in a very few small number of people, but that, you know, it's possible to get quite sick. So I think that um, people will feel How more sick can you get? when they're... Pe- How sick can you still get if you're vaccinated? Well, um, you know, particularly for older adults, okay. um, they can get hospitalized and there have been cases of death. Um, so it's not impossible. It's not like you're, you know, Superman or Superwoman if you get vaccinated that you're completely, you know, uh, Im- impervious. But it, it brings the risk down to a very manageable level. You know, it, it's similar to other types of uh, infections that can cause a serious illness. And so I think you just, you know, have to be be reasonably careful. Carol mentioned the surges that we are seeing in some parts of the country right now. Why Why is that happening? Why is that still happening at this point? And look, I think we need to ask this in the context of understanding that the United States is in a very good place compared to the rest of the world when it comes to administering vaccinations. We keep getting just devastating numbers from other parts of the world, particularly India, which we'll talk about just a little bit later. But here in the U.S., you know, we are hundreds of millions of of shots have been administered. So why are we still seeing these pockets of of infections? Well, because there's still a lot of people who haven't been vaccinated. I mean, that's a simple answer to that question. Um, You know, the, the chance of getting sick if you're vaccinated is just so much lower. Um, it's, you know, I think there was just a study with a 94% prevention, which is just, you know, just a tremendous response to the vaccine. But if you look out in some of these states, just like Michigan recently, it's a race between the virus and the vaccine. And the virus is getting, you know, a little boost from the variants, which are more transmissible and more lethal. And the vaccine is, you know, moving ahead. But starting to slow down a little in some places because, um, you know, we're the people who are really excited to get vaccinated are all getting vaccinated. And now it's getting a little bit harder to 
find and reach people who um, still need to be vaccinated. So I think if you think about it as a race between the, the virus and the vaccine and the, the virus is just getting faster, um, the vaccinations really have to keep up. Well, that's what I feel like I still don't quite understand in terms of is it we've got to get to herd immunity so that the variants can't take us to another wave. Because I know we talked about the so-called Indian variant of the virus. China and Israel have identified cases, and that new variant is thought to be fueling India's deadlier new wave of cases that has made it the world's second worst hit country. Um, Help me understand kind of the mix between getting the vaccine, getting ahead of the variants. And just got about a minute, and then we'll come back and talk some more. Sure. Well, you know, India, it's multiple variants, not just the one they're calling the India variant. There are multiple um, that are causing the problem. And um, basically, there are not a lot of people vaccinated in India. That's the Mm -hmm. challenge. The vaccines actually do protect pretty well to to the extent they've been tested against variants. They do a pretty good job. So getting vaccinated is the best defense against the variant. Well, question that Carol and I have have been (laughs) asking each other for weeks now. We want to ask you. Dr. Sharfstein, is why people have different reactions to the vaccine. For example, I uh, got my second Pfizer shot on Sunday. I took Monday off just in case I had a bad reaction. For 24 hours, I felt fine, but from hours 24 to 36, I was lethargic, I was achy, I felt sick, and then it went away like a light switch at 7 p.m. Monday night. Why does this happen? Like, why did I feel like that? So um, I couldn't answer specifically for each of you, but I can say that, you know, our bodies react differently to vaccines and some people get more of a reaction than others. What's happening is the immune system is basically getting trained to recognize a piece of the coronavirus. The vaccines don't carry the whole coronavirus, they just carry a piece. But it trains the immune system. When the immune system gets trained, you have basically uh, chemicals being uh, released inside your body, natural chemicals that um, do the training and, and get you know, the, the cells ready in case the actual coronavirus comes in, they recognize that piece and, they, and, and the immune system kills the virus. And so you're, the, the, what you feel is a little bit of the chemicals, you know, that sometimes cause fever, sometimes cause fatigue, um, the chemicals that are part of the immune system getting trained to kill the virus. That was Dr. Joshua Sharfstein from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. It's supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies, the parent of Bloomberg Radio. Right. And always check out Bloomberg.com for the latest on COVID-19. And coming up on Bloomberg Business Week, we're talking Walmart, specifically the company's fight against a $15 an hour minimum wage when competitors like Amazon, Target, mm-hmm. Costco have all raised theirs. Right, just Amazon this week talking about upping its wages. That story to come. This is Bloomberg. Broadcasting from the financial capital of the world, Bloomberg 1130 in New York, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991, to Boston, Bloomberg 1061, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Business Week. Tim, this story definitely caught our attention. It's online at Bloomberg Business Week. It's about how, for almost a decade, the movement to push businesses to pay at least $15 an hour has gained momentum. And we saw some of that play out this week with Amazon uh, coming out and boosting pay by at least 50 cents to $3 an hour to over half a million of its staff. Amazon already paying that $15 mm-hmm. minimum wage as well. Other companies like Target up theirs too. But one company that's not doing that is Walmart. It's consistently shot the argument for $15 an hour down. We spoke with Blue 
Bloomberg News reporter Thomas Buckley and asked about a specific worker in his story, Mendy Hughes. So Mendy Hughes has been an associate at, um, at Walmart for some years now, and she is still earning $11.85 an hour, which makes her really an outlier to a number of similar uh, similar employees at the likes of Amazon and Best Buy and Target, all of whom pay $15 an hour. One thing, the reason this, what I mean, among the many things that just kept surprising me, word after word in this, was that Mendy is, is the person who has been working there for, for more than a decade. And what Walmart says about its wages is that it's investing in people for careers, not for jobs. But her pay seems to indicate that she's not being rewarded in that way. That's absolutely right. So she started out, I believe, on $7 an hour way back when, and that has increased to 11.85. I think that it's not increasing anywhere near as fast as she would like to see on the basis that, you know, as per the story, when she's short on Lunchables or frozen TV dinners, you know, she's having to stop by the drive-through at McDonald's to uh, pick up, you know, um, items from, from the menu, from the value menu. Um, and also, to that point, I think that a number of her colleagues you know, survive on, on food stamps. So on that basis, I think certainly would want to be seeing um, a raise that's commensurate with what Walmart's rivals are doing. Walmart's argument has long been that they're really seeking to protect ladder of opportunity, wherein, you know, people's individual ambitions will be rewarded as they rise up in the business. But some like Mendy, for example, who has very immediate concerns or who has had very immediate concerns, such as, say, tearing her ACL and falling behind on medical bills, they're not so much thinking about their next job, but more, you know, what immediately has to happen for them to live a very basic level of dignity. I think. Right. As you mentioned, their annual revenue increased to $35 billion to more than, or by $35 billion to more than $500 billion in the past year to earn $22 billion in profit. Listen, I am all for capitalism and people making a profit. I think it's really wonderful. And it's, uh, I think, the basis of our country, no doubt about it. What is the argument that Walmart puts out there in terms of not being able to pay some of its workers more money? I've been at those annual meetings where we're workers stand up and say, I work for you full time and I'm also getting welfare. (laughs) How does that make sense? And what is the responsibility of an employer like Walmart, who is facing the big behemoth of Amazon, who says, you can probably get it cheaper at Amazon? I think it's a really interesting question. I mean, to your point about capitalism, you know, really being the the, the growth engine for so many developed economies um, over, over, you know, the past centuries, I think that what we have come to see is that, you know, you're sort of driving um, this this economy in a certain direction in the case of Walmart, because you know you are America's largest private employer, which means that you know you have a responsibility to lift a lot of people up, um, and you know guarantee a, a fair living to to the people that work for you. Where it becomes complicated is that the CEO Doug McMillan says that he wants you know to really stagger wage increases in a way that benefits the UK economy. So that means you know creating the right level of ambition within the company to see people rise. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, you know, people who have a lot more immediate needs, including those on food stamps, might not necessarily see it that way. Um, and in the case of Mendy, to your earlier point, you know, what if she worked a bit harder or a bit longer? I mean, this is somebody, you know, who's pulling 40-hour weeks. Those who, you know, spend standing up the entire time. Wow. I'm playing COVID, devil's advocate. Been... I just hope you know I'm playing devil's advocate. Go ahead, please. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, but just just to use you know the specific example, yeah. um, because she is she is one of you know 750,000 people at that level of um, of, uh, of employment at Walmart. 
So these are incredibly difficult shifts. That's Bloomberg News reporter Thomas Buckley. Tim, this story stayed with me. Uh, It just, when you bring it down to the granular level and tell about an individual and their experience and how they're trying to get by, and you do wonder when there is such a wealthy and profitable company, why they can't maybe pay their workers just a little bit more. Yeah, it it was in stark relief this week, too, because we talk so much about the changes that the Biden administration is proposing to Mm -hmm. the wealthiest Americans. And it was a reminder that there really are two Americas. Right, exactly. There is such a divide, such a gap at this point. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Up next, a look at the recovery of New York's commercial real estate scene. Drive around New York, it feels like it's coming back. It does, kinda. but it's got a long way to go, Carol. Yeah, I still a lot of places boarded up. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. Great way to finish out our first hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week because we are talking with Kent Swig. Kent is president at Swig Equities. It's a real estate development and investment firm focusing on commercial and residential properties. They've got properties in New York City, also out on the West Coast. The company has purchased and or developed in excess of $3 billion of office properties, totaling over 4 million square feet since its inception all the way back in 2001. And Tim, Kent is really a great go-to voice for us. We've talked to him, of course, about real estate, but also about some of the big issues facing our world during the pandemic. It seems like spring has sprung, so <laughs> things are things are a little bit better. Um, I, I personally feeling better that I've had my rabies shots or my vaccine, um, and uh, so I've, I've traveled. I went. I was in San Francisco visiting my brother, who I haven't seen in 14 months, and wow. I went for the weekend and came back. And so that's certainly a novel new thing that I haven't done in a year. Um, so I'm feeling better. Well, good. I'm so glad to hear that. Me too. I'm double vaccinated and feeling pretty good about that. Uh, almost out of my two week after my second shot. So just waiting for that to wrap up. You know, you and I, we've talked about hybrid. We've talked about what happens to real estate. Is there anything from we talked about in pandemic, how things are going to change a lot? Any of that going to, you think, ultimately stick with us? And I know we've had this conversation before, but I think the further we go along, we get a better idea of whether or not things change, whether or not things stay the same, or whether things maybe change a little bit. It's a perfect question and very interesting because there's a little irony in what's going on. Um, yes, I believe that that, that high, some form of hybrid working um, will be here with us for a, for a long time. You know, if, if, if somebody has 100 emails, to do one day and they don't want to go in the office and it's more efficient to sit at home, fine. Um, But I'm a big believer in offices and its productivity and all that. The irony is this. Um, All the people in the offices, you know, the companies are saying Mm -hmm. the reason we could have hybrid working is because of all the technology. You know, there's the the Google technology, Zoom technology, Facebook, etc. And yet, if you look at the technology companies, Facebook, who took 1.7 million square feet in Hudson Yards, in, in, and it's being built out, not yet occupied, took another 800,000 square feet in July uh, at the Farley Office Building right here in New York, um, which they will not occupy for years. Google, hiring 10,000 new workers, all going to be in offices. <clears throat> Amazon bought the former Lord & Taylor Building from WeWork. So all the technology companies are, are getting more office space for their workers because they know that productivity, efficiency, opportunity, and creativity cannot be achieved from home, but must be achieved in the workplace. And yet, it's the office 
people that are saying because of technology, <laughs> we, can. we actually could work better from home. So it's a very interesting thing going on. right Well, now. it's funny. Somebody said to me, you know, you just wait for like among the financial firms or something that somebody, you know, comes out and got some big deal or some underwriting that they're going to do just because they got on a plane and flew somewhere and got the customer and they got the client that all of a sudden everybody's going to be like, you know what, this hybrid stuff doesn't work. This Zoom, you know, meeting with clients doesn't work, that everybody will ultimately come back uh, as a result. Do you see it that way? I happen to, yes. I think Zoom will be helpful um, for in-between meetings. But let me tell you, if you're somebody in your 20s and 30s and maybe even into your 40s, how much network in your life do you have? How many people do you know in your life? The idea in your 20s and 30s is you go networking, you meet people in, mm-hmm. the, co- in the coffee station, in the elevator, etc. If you're in your 50s and 60s and 70s, you have a built-in lifetime of network. You can pick up the phone, you can talk to people, you can network. These, the, the younger generation doesn't know anybody yet. So their opportunity to meet people and opportunity and creativity doesn't exist. So they're pigeonholed at home, and they can't just go out and do things. So it does not work for that generation at all. Does the way we use real estate, will it change? Yes. So how will it change? A couple ways. Uh, Let's take residential and then commercial. Residential, um, the the idea of a home office uh, is something that I think is very intriguing and very wanted by the by, by the purchasing and renting population. Um, so if you look at some of these downtown major buildings that converted from commercial to residential, they have this dead, dead space or long corridors and they didn't know what to do with them. Now certainly there's a very big need for them because home officing is something that's very important um, with that because I think office space is also, the use of it is changing a little bit where we will have some hybrid offices, meaning hybrid uh, schedules, meaning that you'll work maybe four days a week and maybe one day at home or maybe half a day at home and therefore you need some place at home to work. So the residential will be impacted also with um, outdoor space clearly is needed. Balconies and terraces are very desired. And then secondly, in the office space, how does that change? Um, spacing around low low partitions uh, probably are not as desirable because high partitions seem to give a little bit both of privacy and air, you know, and, and air change, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, and also, um, you know, having these big communal areas that used to be out there, which were, are still, I think, very much desired, maybe slightly less or slightly reconfigured to give a little more space, not just because of COVID, but I think that we're more sensitive to things like the flu season. Um, so I think our whole way of looking at, at health is going to impact ourselves. I think we will get beyond COVID, certainly, but the, the feeling we have about being concerned about health taking one's temperature before somebody goes in an office because of flu, not just COVID. I think all those things are going to be are, are, are going to affect us in our both our home life and our business life. You know, it's fun. We have a, a story out on the Bloomberg, and it says more Americans are leaving cities, but don't call it an urban exodus. And basically, they're saying that, you know, maybe you want to call it a little bit of an urban shuffle. You know, we've talked about mass moves to Florida, to Texas, and data shows that most people who did move stayed close to where they came from. Although I think in the Sunbelt regions, that were popular even before the pandemic did, did see some gains. So there's a little bit of that going on. Has anything changed in terms of how you want to invest in real estate, how you want to develop real estate? Um, uh, well, um, I'm still, I still love real estate. I still want to invest in real estate, and I still believe in real estate. Um, I'm check, also check, still check. a New Yorker. <laughs> I'm still a New Yorker, yes. and I want to stay a New Yorker. So all those people that moved to Florida, you know, okay for them. But 
come talk to me in July and August. Are you still down there? You're still living out there? I'm not so sure. Um, so, yes, people do move. People do react in major, major times of crisis. And mm-hmm. there's nothing wrong with that. Responses take time and thought. So, in my opinion, the response to COVID um, is going to make some impacts in here. But is it going to change real estate being used? We're all going to live somewhere. We're all going to work somewhere. And it will not be in the same place. Um, so I think we have to be more thoughtful about how we do things. Um, I will tell you, everybody, as I said before, is aware of health. Right. Um, so the flu that it used to be, you know, I'm a diehard worker. I'm coming to work today in spite of my 102 fever. <laughs> Guess what? <laughs> no, Stay thanks. home and do us all a favor. So, I mean, th- those, those wonderful things aren't going to happen anymore, right? So, so yeah. yes, we are going to change our way of life. But I don't think, um, I think that the, the, the market went up certainly in residential in a lot of places, you know, like, like Florida and others. And the question is when things settle down and people miss their homes like New York, does that mean that the residential will come back a little bit? As, as, as the economy grows, will actually some places fall a little bit because they won't have that persistent people going in? Right. Possibly, yes. We ran a story about Devin Pendleton. Talked about you specifically securing a minimum of $6 billion in gold reserves to back your new cryptocurrency. First of all, crypto, your son. Tell me the role that he had and kind of bring it to your attention. Well, I have a son, two sons, Oliver and Simon. Oliver um, has been involved with cryptocurrency since he was in his early 20s, even though it's had a teenager in there. But, but um, So he'd been investing and doing things, and he certainly enlightened me to that. Um, then he used some of my money to go invest in some crypto, which he did. So mm-hmm. I'm certainly, I was aware of it. And I went on a board of a, of a business that, that was involved in crypto. Um, so I, I think I was attuned to it and I, oh, I awakened, which is what it should happen from a younger generation. Right. Thankfully, the younger generation happened to be my son. So even better. So I mean, it awakened me to see opportunity. So tell me about this stablecoin that you guys are doing. What? Why go this direction? Um, what do you see as kind of where it goes specifically? And I'm just curious about the interest that you've gotten it. You know, are, are receiving in terms of investors already. Okay, so the initial thing is I'm a business person. Um, I look at things and I see things, and if I see a flaw or something that's interrupted, um, I like to go fix them to correct them. Um, so that application of a, a talent, God willing, I have, can go in many different different many different mm-hmm. industries. It happened to fall into crypto. I found an opportunity that existed. So. Um, my partner Steve uh, Braverman and I ended up buying a company, uh, at, which was a crypto company. One of the things, unfortunately, it had is that the keys to the controls um, were were elsewhere, not just with us. So we had to shut down something, mm-hmm. uh, and we're and we're reissuing a new coin. That's Ken Swig of Swig Equities, and you know, fun story. First of all, he's someone who knows real estate so well, but open to new investment ideas. And this one, he's doing a stable coin backed by gold. He's actually buying the gold. The idea he got from his son. I, I, I love that. And also, I, I think a lot about it this time when we were talking about crypto a few years ago. And this mm-hmm. time really feels different because of institutional involvement and also because of companies you know, actually going public, Bitcoin being part of Tesla's balance sheet, MicroStrategy. You've talked right. to Michael Saylor a lot about that. Yeah. It just feels like a different moment with crypto. Well, let's not forget this week, J.P. Morgan Chase preparing to offer a Bitcoin fund to wealthy clients. So kind of the latest sign that Wall Street is warming to the largest cryptocurrency after it's been on quite a run in recent months. Well, that wraps up the first hour of the week. 
weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Tim Stenovec. Ahead in our next hour, 60 years of Ken, <laughs> the doll. We talk earnings and toys with the CEO of Mattel. That stock, by the way, up close to 30% so far this year. That's definitely been a pandemic play and continuing here in 2021. Plus, JetBlue's founder getting ready to launch another new airline. Yes, Tim? in the middle of a pandemic. And he's the fixer when it comes to restaurants with problems or problematic owners. He's also been keeping us up to date on how the hard-hit restaurant industry is doing during the pandemic. We're talking, of course, about John Taffer from Bar Rescue. We're going to hear from him in just a few minutes. Don't go anywhere. Grab another cup of coffee or whatever your drink is of choice, because we've got more on Bloomberg Business Week. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week. Insight from the reporters and editors who bring you America's most trusted business magazine. Plus, global business, finance, and tech news as it happens. Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Tim Stenovic. Plenty ahead in our second hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week, including a chat with the CEO of Mattel. We're going to talk corporate responsibility and how Ken the doll is well into middle age. You know, it's one of my favorite stories of the <laughs> pandemic over the last Why? 14 months. Oh. The idea that parents and grandparents initially, and look, still, just wanted to spoil those kids who were in lockdown, who were doing those hybrid classes. It's just like a, a kind of a, a nice story from the pandemic. Kids, we bought some games for our family and there's <laughs> yeah. not really any kids in no our kids home in anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Plus, John Taffer, the host of Bar Rescue, details how the pandemic transformed Las Vegas. Big time. First up this hour, though, in the current double issue of the magazine, a story about the airline founder who is launching another new carrier during the pandemic. Talk about timing. Drake Bennett is Bloomberg News Projects and Investigations reporter. He wrote the story and joined us along with Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber. The individual behind it all, the man who created JetBlue, which in many ways disrupted the airline industry at the time. Yeah, continuing to do so. We asked Drake to tell us about David Nealman, probably the most successful airline entrepreneur of all time. The airlines he's started have been budget airlines, and, and JetBlue was kind of you know, his best known. And the idea there was to basically uh, create a budget airline that didn't feel like a budget airline. So, I mean, he's someone that, you know, early on in his career was obsessed with Southwest and set out to, to create a, a Southwest-like airline, but one that didn't, you know, Southwest famously served only peanuts to people to kind of remind them of the peanuts they were paying for their fares. Um, and so with JetBlue, he's like, well, we'll put TVs in it, we'll have leather seats, the planes will be brand new, it'll kind of feel nicer. Um, and the other thing he did with JetBlue that was super smart was, was use JFK. Um, it's weird to think about it, but New York City was actually an underserved uh, market for air travel um, until JetBlue came in. Uh, JFK was really only used for international travel, and it was basically a ghost town during the day. So he has a long history of being able to find these you know, gaps in the market, even in places like a, a kind of a New York. Um, and Breeze is basically uh, uh, another budget carrier. Um, it, it's a little bit modeled on Allegiant um, insofar as they're not going to be flying every day. They're going to be you know, concentrating on those days of the week when uh, vacationers are more likely to travel. Um, and they're going to be using slightly smaller planes than Southwest and Allegiant fly. So the, they, those guys fly like 737s or A320s. Um, uh, Breeze is going to be using slightly smaller planes, and they think that changes the math for them in the way that opens up kind of this whole tranche of smaller markets. Um especially once they get this new plane, the uh, Airbus A220, which which has really, really long range for such a small plane. So they'll be able to do what's called these 
long, thin routes. So from some sort of smaller city in the U.S. all the way to you know, Hawaii, if they can find people who want to take that direct flight. What opportunities, if you can explain that a little bit more, and sort of like what he sees Breeze being able to tap into here. I mean, you mentioned the budget stuff and the smaller airlines, but like where, yeah. where does he think the window of opportunity sort of lies? The real question is business travel. Um, and he's fortunate in that he's, his sort of target uh, customer is not a not primarily a kind of a someone on like a who's who's getting their tickets paid for by like a corporate travel department. Um, it's more kind of a vacationer or a visiting friends and relatives kind of traveler. Um, and in a sense, I mean, it's you know, it's not a great time to be running an airline. There's an enormous <laughs> amount of uncertainty. Right. Uh, but there are ways that uh, he's. You know, there's been this kind of retrenchment. Uh, you know, a lot of cities have just lost service. And so in a way, it kind of opens up some opportunities for for uh, for, a, for a breeze. Um, and also, you know, he, does, he hasn't been trying to run an airline this whole year when everyone else was like hemorrhaging money and uh, basically trying to stay just ahead above water. So, right. um, you know, th- there are ways in which his timing has, has been fortuitous. <laughs> Well, you know, this is what's fun about your story, Drake, is yes, there's the business, very businessy story of he's doing is, you know, another airline. He has been so successful and kind of, you know, disrupting the airline industry. But what's really cool is you kind of get into who this guy is. And if you were going to bet on somebody to bring an airline during a pandemic <laughs> to the market, mm-hmm. I'd bet on David Nealman. Talk to us a little bit about your experience with him. Because Part of what was fun was he's got some pretty strong views on COVID. Yeah, I mean he's he's a little bit of a COVID truther. Uh, mm-hmm. He he really um, you know when we he met he, he showed me the mask he wears. He, he's not a huge fan of masks, um, and it, it sort of it looks like a sort of normal black cloth mask. But then when he took it off, which he immediately did once we sat down at a conference table, he showed me that it's basically made of like mosquito mesh. So it's not really a, a functioning mask in any sense of the word. So. Um, he's, you know, for the past year, he, he's been pretty vocal um, about kind of what he sees as the sort of overreaction to COVID that, you know, the sort of medical epidemiological establishment has 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 sort of um, presented. And so he, you know, and it, I think it's linked the way it kind of it, it's linked to his attitude about risk is the attitude about risk that you would expect from someone who multiple times has launched these extremely complicated endeavors that are unlikely to succeed. He sort of keeps doing this. And so I think it sort of shapes the way he feels about the risks of getting this disease and the way we should kind of, um, as a society, think about that. I absolutely love that that profile. And look, mm-hmm. Nealman was planning on doing this before the pandemic, but the fact that he's still planning on doing this, given the way that people are thinking differently about flying, how they're thinking about traveling, on the other side of this, and there's so many unknowns, it's, it's gutsy. Oh, it's definitely gutsy. And listen, it's a domestic play. He's definitely tapping into the recovery and the reopening that we are definitely seeing increasingly here in the United States. That's Bloomberg News Projects and Investigations reporter Drake Bennett and Business Week editor Joel Weber. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week coming up, the CEO of Mattel on Fun with Toys, and then gets a little serious on corporate responsibility. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. 
So check it out, everybody. Mattel stock jumping to a four-year high after the toy maker beat Wall Street estimates for the first quarter and also raised its outlook for all of 2021. We saw that trade, Tim, last week. We did, and this comes out a year after the pandemic wiped out stores and led to factory closings and production delays. And yet it was a year, too, that Mattel was one of the stocks that benefited from the pandemic as families stuck at home bought lots of toys and games for their kids. I'm guessing your son was spoiled a little bit. Uh, yeah, I mean, he's an only <laughs> child at this point, so he's always spoiled, especially totally, by his grandparents. Totally get it. Well, we got an update on the business with Mattel chairman and CEO Enon Kreis, who is, by the way, marking his third year as CEO of the company and has been working on a turnaround. Anyway, you look at it, it was a record quarter for the company. Uh, our results came well ahead of expectations with outstanding growth and a very strong increase in profitability and free cash flow. Net sales were up 47%, 47%, the highest quarterly growth rate on record going back more than 25 years. Uh, for the third consecutive quarter, we had double-digit sales increase. Mm-hmm. We grew ahead of the industry and gained market share uh, uh, globally, and you know what's what's important is that our performance was very broad based. We achieved double digit growth in each of our four regions, double digit growth across all product categories, all seven product categories, and and strong double digit increase in our three power brands, Barbie, Hot Wheels, and Fisher Price, as well as American Girls. So what you're really seeing is the success of our multi year transformation strategy, which we believe puts us in an excellent position to continue to improve profitability and uh, accelerate growth. Well, why do you think we saw that growth? And give me an idea of what channels. Was it store channels? Was it online? Uh, And in terms of geographical breakdown, was it more growth in one area versus another? I'm trying to tie it to COVID and see if there's any connection here. It was really, you know, really broad-based. I mean, online Mm -hmm. retail did grow uh, faster. We grew at 58% year on year, so that was definitely a driver. But, uh, you know, in the U.S., we grew 30% faster than the industry. In uh, Europe, we grew almost double the industry growth rate. Uh, we grew market share in the dolls category. We, you know, Barbie continued to be the number one doll property and gained share in each of the key regions. So it was really, you know, really uh, broad-based uh, across all regions, all product categories, and, and, and each of our power brands. How much do you think the stimulus, we were talking uh, with the CEO of Chipotle, Brian Nickel, and asked him, I mean, they had some new products, uh, a quesadilla that's uh, hand-rolled and handmade, and uh, that definitely was a big driver of sales for them in the quarter, but he did also concede that those stimulus checks that went out from the government definitely helped out as well. How much of a kick do you think that might have been at play here? I know you're global, but I do wonder in terms of the U.S. numbers how you think that might have helped. Yeah, it's hard to tell. You know, first, I mean, we've been growing now for, uh, this is the third consecutive quarter where we grew double digit. And while uh, potentially some of the exceptional growth we saw in the quarter benefited partially from uh, favorable uh, year-over-year COVID-related comparisons, this is relative to Q1 of last year, not so much the stimulus, uh, we see very strong demand for our consumers across uh, for consumers for our brands uh, across the board. Um, uh, we're seeing uh, supply chain performing well. We're still growing market share. Right. And you know, strength of our performance is also evident when you compare our 2021 results to 2019 before uh, COVID, with net sales being up uh, higher by 27 percent. 
in the first quarter of 21 relative to 2019 uh, when you take the uh, pandemic out of the comparison. So uh, on, on that basis, you can see the momentum. It's been um, ongoing. I wouldn't put it on the stimulus, um, uh, but you know we stay focused on, on what we're doing, just make sure that we connect with consumers, we make great products that resonate, right. and, uh, and continue to grow. What do you think has changed in your approach to something like Barbie or American Girl? I think we've talked about it before. American Girl was huge in my home with my daughter, who's now 18. But for many years, uh, we were obsessed with it. She was obsessed with it. I grew up big time with Barbies. But you know, both of those brands went through difficult times. What's different in terms of your approach that you think is resonating with consumers? Well, this really goes uh, down to, to the Mattel playbook, which we're now really applying for all of our products and categories. It's about brand purpose. Uh, in the case of Barbie, it's inspiring lim- the limitless potential in every girl. It's about cultural relevance, design-led innovation, and active demand creation. You know, each, each of our products, each of our categories have uh, a brand purpose, a reason to be. Uh, it's more than being, being a play system. It's about uh, resonating with consumers, being relevant, being, um, carrying a message, and elevating uh, the play system beyond what you would call a traditional toy. So our brands really have a societal impact. You know, Barbie puts out a new career, and they write about it in a uh, you know, newspaper, and it's a headline of, uh, of mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, the television shows. So it's really, these are brands that have societal impact, that go back generations, and have an important place in, um, in culture. Well, we just have a couple of minutes left here, and uh, there's a couple of anniversaries. Ken is turning 60, and he's never looked better, might I say. And it's your third year you're coming up on uh, as CEO, uh, and you've really worked on a turnaround at this company. What's to come? Uh, and what, what, what are you looking forward to? I know you guys are doing movies. Uh, you're doing a Rock'em Sock'em Robots live action motion picture. Where does growth come from in the future? And just got about a minute left here. Well, the biggest change is that we transition from being a toy manufacturing company into being an, an IP-driven, high-performing toy company. There are a lot of opportunities for us within the toy aisle, and there's so much more to come from uh, RIP that we believe we can commercialize and extend to highly accredited business verticals like film, television, live event, consumer product and merchandise, or music that are directly adjacent to the toy industry where we have tremendous value to still capture. That's Enon Kreis, the CEO and chairman of Mattel. Can you believe Ken is 60? I can. He looks good for his age. Yeah, Barbie looks pretty good, too. <laughs> Just going to say. Plastic, it doesn't age. All right, still to come on Bloomberg Business Week. Fresh off of last weekend's Oscars, we're going to take a look at black representation in film and television. Bottom line, not so great. This is Bloomberg. Broadcasting from the financial capital of the world, Bloomberg 1130 in New York, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991, to Boston, Bloomberg 1061, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Business Week. 
This last half hour, Tim, two industries that really need some help, one in becoming more diverse, the other in getting back up and running. And we're going to start with the industry that needs a bit more diversity. Last weekend, we know, was the Oscars. We definitely did see a much more diverse group of nominees this year, more sensitivity to inclusion in the broadcast coverage. And yet, there is still a really long way to go when it comes to both diversity and inclusion in Hollywood. There is a long way to go. And McKinsey is out with a study about just that. Looking at black representation in film and TV, the consulting firm teamed up with Blacklight Collective. It's a coalition of black Hollywood executives on the study. That's right, Tim. And we talked about the very personal findings with McKinsey partner Sheldon Lynn and Nina Shaw. She's attorney and founding partner at Blacklight Collective. The conversation started by asking Sheldon about the study. Number one, there was a real need. So film and TV happens to be among the worst performers on diversity across all major American industries. Number two, we felt we could add a net new contribution on the existing body of work, in particular around building the business case. What is the value at stake from a failing to pursue diversity and inclusion in Hollywood? And number three, which is where Nina and the Black Air Collective came in, was we felt there was a real path to change here, working with uh, folks who wanted to drive change forward. So that's a bit of a context around the court. Well, Nita, come on in on this. I've been reading some of the interviews you've done. You've talked about being uh, in the entertainment space, uh, being a talent lawyer, where you've often only been the, uh, or you've often been the only black individual in the room when there's something going on. I think that the entertainment industry as a whole um, uh, often um, is, is, is viewed in a light of being a bit more progressive than its numbers would indicate. Um, and I and I think that 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 progress that those progressive notions are real. Um, I don't want to in, in any way imply otherwise. But but often it just doesn't match up. And I think the wonderful thing about this study was that it really dug in and it took a look at the numbers. And I think the the number that stands out for all of us is this notion that ten billion dollars in annual revenues uh, every year is being lost as a result of the lack of diversity in the business. And that's something that should appeal to all of us as, as, as something that can be cured. Right. Like we often have conversations here that above and beyond being the right thing to do in terms of diversity and inclusion, there's often a business cost, uh, Sheldon, by not having that diversity. Yeah, absolutely. And Nina said it, right? So the, the headline was that there is a $10 billion opportunity here for us to you know, pursue diversity and inclusion. And it came from what we found, you know, quite surprising for well-established industries, a set of factors that were, in effect, suppressing the market, the true market for black-led content, in three important, although surprising ways. So number one was on distribution. So we found that, on average, a film was being shown in 30 40% fewer countries versus a white-led project, even though the black-led projects made more per country. And the second thing, from our return on investment perspective, ROI, we found that black-led projects were receiving 10%, 15% less in marketing allocation, even though they were making more um, per dollar spent at the box office, specifically 16 cents more per dollar spent on marketing. And perhaps the most heartbreaking part of the equation in terms of market inefficiency was the fact that only 4% of the projects coming out of Hollywood were accounted for by black creatives. Mm-hmm. Defined as having black writers, directors, producers, creators behind the camera, which again is an astounding number when you think about a population average of 13.4%. 
So those factors together combine to the big number, $10 billion in lost value. And that's just from black representation. Nina, the goal of the report was to humanize black lives. Tell us how you did that. No, we're, we were fortunate. Um, within the 90 or so individuals who formed this loose coalition, the Black Light Collective, you have literally hundreds of years of experience in the entertainment industry, um, uh, people in the representation business like me, but also people in the production business. So I thought that we lent an incredible perspective as people who work day to day in this industry and have done so for many years. Uh, and and the, our collective action as, in, as a group is really indicative of the kind of collective action that we need to see within the industry. I think the report, one of the report's conclusions is that this, these are tough problems to solve if they're being done within insular organizations, that it's going to take a collective action across many of the businesses in the industry to really address these solutions. And, that's, and the first step in that, of course, is acknowledging that that these problems exist and that they have a tremendous financial in, impact. And we're so grateful to McKinsey for having done the work that really allows us a launching pad for real change. That's Nina Shaw, founding partner at Blacklight Collective, and Sheldon Lynn of McKinsey. And if you missed any of the conversation or you want to hear the full conversation, just go to Bloomberg.com or check out our podcast feed, our Bloomberg Business Week podcast feed for all of it. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, restaurants need a revival and a big assist to getting back to normal. Bar Rescue host John Taffer on the comeback of the industry and of his hometown of Vegas. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. We've been talking with him throughout the pandemic, initially just after the world and restaurants shut down, Tim, back in March of 2020. We know restaurants are one of the hardest hit industries during the health pandemic, with a record number of U.S. restaurants closing their doors for good last year. Well, for the latest on where we are in the industry, we spoke to John Taffer, host and executive producer of Bar Rescue. He joined us from Las Vegas, where this weekend he's kicking off a new season of Bar Rescue. This one focused on his hometown. We began by checking in on how things are going. A lot of good news, actually. Uh, uh, we work very closely with a company called Shift4, who's one of the largest payment processors for the restaurant industry. Three weeks ago, we saw a bump in New York of 61% in a week. Wow. So we're seeing volume coming up substantially. I'm here in Las Vegas. Uh, the Strip is pretty full. Occupancy is coming back. In the city of Las Vegas, we sold more beer in the month of March last month than in the history of Las Vegas. So there are shining little spots here that are moving in good directions. And I'm forecasting a pretty darn good summer. Well, okay. So wait, do we get then to pre-pandemic levels this year or is it more a 2022 story? Well, you know, I think there is some regional impact upon this. You know, we take a look at markets like Florida, Miami. I think we do come back to pre-pandemic levels. But, you know, I think that markets like Las Vegas, we come back to pre-pandemic levels. Let me put an interesting premise out at you. It's how we define pre-pandemic levels. Let's say we lose 38% of our restaurants and bars across the country as a result of the pandemic and the marketplace comes back to 80% of its previous level, Carol. We have 38% less capacity Mm -hmm. for a marketplace that's only gone down 20%. To me, those are pretty good numbers and it looks like the restaurants that survive land in a pretty strong place come this summer. John, I'm a big fan of your show and the new season is all going to be about Vegas. Specifically walk through the particulars of that market. 
which is so tourist dependent. So, you know, you said you're feeling pretty good about it. Well, you know, it's a singular market, certainly a singular economy, and we're so based in travel. The reason why we took the show to Las Vegas this year was not because it's my hometown, but because it, it suffered the highest unemployment impact from the pandemic. It was something to see, Carol. You drive down the Las Vegas Strip and these huge buildings literally boarded up with plywood because casinos didn't even have doors. They certainly didn't have locks on those doors. So to see it was devastating. And our city was really impacted very, very badly. Now, of course, we're coming out of it. The Strip, it seems, a lot busier. This season of Bar Rescue wasn't shot on the Strip. It wasn't about billion-dollar casinos. It's about local operations in Las Vegas. When the hospitality industry stopped, all their employees uh, 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 stopped coming to these other operations. All right. So, you know, how quickly is the restaurant industry within Vegas and elsewhere, how quickly do you think they'll, they'll be able to kind of revamp uh, and bring back those workers? Well, you know, the problem is getting back to workers right now. If you drive yeah. down the strip in Las Vegas, those huge great signs say help wanted. Mm. Uh, uh, you know, I, I'm confused by our government posture because they forecasted that we'd be back to quote normal on July 4th, but yet they extended the unemployment benefit package to September. And we're having a very difficult time getting our employees back right now. So could you imagine, Carol, you go through this for 14 months, you survive it. Mm -hmm. We have the restaurant uh, uh, package from government. It helped us pay our mortgage, pay our debt. We're now strengthened. We're ready to move forward. Our customers are coming back and we can't get employees. We have to resolve this issue of getting our employees back. And it's a huge national problem for us right now. Yeah, it's interesting. Are, well, are you guys being heard in Washington? Well, hopefully we're being heard. But, it's, you know, it's a question of removing a benefit that they've already extended. So it's not all that politically attractive. But if we're mm. going to let business grow, we need our employees back. One thing I want to ask you about the new season that you guys are doing a Bar Rescue. We know the restaurant industry can be a really difficult one. You profile, you know, business owner after business owner, sometimes they're family owned businesses, often they are, how difficult it can be. But the pandemic just put a whole other layer on this because you have one episode from what I understand is you've got a family that is homeless. They've been sleeping in the restaurant because they lost their house. And that wasn't just because the restaurant industry is tough. It's just because the pandemic was also tough. Yeah, they, they spent their family savings and bought the restaurant a month before the pandemic began. Oh. Can you believe it, Carol? So when we got there, three days before we got there, they lost their house. And there were four young teenage, young boys sleeping on a wooden floor above the restaurant. The family had nothing. And, you know, we talk on a network like this about the impact on our businesses. Mm -hmm. After 14 months, it's now the impact upon the owner. We're at the next level now, Carol. It has mm -hmm. impacted family life and owners in my business significantly. And that's just one example of it. There's another interesting thing that came out of this season. We had an owner who had lost his house three months earlier, but borrowed money and did everything he could to keep his employees working. Mm -hmm. So he, he borrowed, he did everything. He paid them when they had to stay home. He paid them. So now the business is open. It's allowed to attain 25% of, of its capacity and it's running that way. And we come in and do an audit and find that those very same employees who he lost his house protecting were in fact stealing from him so wow. it's an interesting yeah. time 
and, and you know, here's an owner who who sacrificed for the employees. So there's a lot of dynamics going on here. But you're right; these are traditionally good owners now who are running successful businesses, who the pandemic has affected. But you know, also, Carol, I must say, there are restaurateurs who have done well mm-hmm. during this period of time. They've been nimble. They've shifted their business models to family boxes to go and all sorts of things. And there's also a residual effect upon our industry that a lot of people aren't quite talking about yet. And I'm going to make a bit of a forecast here. And that is, you know, companies typically, and I'll just use an example of one that I happen to as a friend, like a Panera Bread, for example, prior to the pandemic would have run five, seven percent to go. Right. Now they're running about 30 percent. There's a view that that 30 percent to go business stays mm-hmm. and the restaurant fills up again. So, you know, I take a look at that and think to myself that there is a real opportunity to bring back the inside business this year and have a whole new level of delivery business that increases our revenues to about 120 percent of what they used to be. And then and then we take a look at the marketplace, you know, as I've mentioned that, the, you know, we look at 38 percent less capacity, mm-hmm. even if the marketplace comes back at an 80 percent level. It's a pretty strong environment. Well, you know, I do wonder about what stays with us. I mean, I was kind of blown away by some of the different restaurants, some of them very high end that all of a sudden were doing takeout because that's how they had to survive, John, during the pandemic or also thought about their community and how they could provide food for their community who was struggling. And I wonder how much of what restaurants learned during the pandemic stays with us on the other side. I think a lot of it actually does. You know, consumers have learned that you can order a really good dinner from a restaurant and have it delivered at home and it's packaged well and it's delicious. You know, in the past, we used to think we had to go to that restaurant to get that quality (laughs) of food. So there's a much more consumer friendliness towards delivery. Uh, That's where I think we can keep the same amount of monthly visitations and still add a little business through deliveries if we position ourselves correctly. But there's a few things that are going to remain for sure, Carol. For example, curbside. Uh, You know, we work with hardware stores uh, as consultants as well and other type of retailers. When you look at the architectural plans of retailers today, curbside delivery is now architecturally intended into the plans. Mm -hmm. All retailers are going to continue with curbside delivery, app order, they throw it in your trunk when you leave. Restaurants are going to be the same. So there are some residual things that are going to linger uh, in the restaurant business to go packaging, to go technologies, uh, uh, an orientation to do more to go products. I don't think we'll see face masks disappear from kitchens very soon. I think that lingers. I think that's probably a good idea just for colds and flus and everything else. I think that hand sanitation technologies and things like that will continue. And I think that the industry comes out of this uh, actually stronger. I got to ask you about your restaurant model that you guys uh, launched. I think we talked about it last time. You know, what you talked about being the kind of world's safest restaurant, a lot of robotics, a lot of automation. That's something, too, that I feel like will stay with us. Oh, no question. But as labor cost goes up, you know, the amortization and the numbers of automation looks really, really good. And, you know, that's one of the challenges when you start to bring a $15 minimum wage into the restaurant business. Mm -hmm. Suddenly a machine that flips hamburgers is very economically feasible. You know, I wonder if pushing the payroll level to that level doesn't have more of a detrimental effect uh, on young people who work in restaurants and need that kind of employment. Well, you know, let me just bring you to to some of the bigger pro, uh, policy initiatives, John, that are going on. We are expected, uh, you know, the president has been talking about raising taxes, corporate taxes. Uh, I think there's a lot of investors, maybe small business owners who are watching this very, very closely. What do you think is the right balance here? You know, I personally think that at this stage, we shouldn't look at any kind of corporate tax increase for at least another year or so. You know, to think that right now we can't get our employees back. Uh, our costs in supplies are way up. You know, we're doing bar rescue now, Carolyn. We've been re- 
remodeling mm -hmm. uh, eight bars during the past few weeks. Construction materials in some cases are up 60% if you can get them. So, I mean, take a look at all the operating expenses are up for that restaurant. He has new sanitation costs, PPE costs, his food costs are higher, his energy costs are higher, his cost for employee is higher, and now we're going to whim him with additional taxes as well. That makes no sense when we're just starting to get our feet back on the ground again and getting into a mode of profitability. So it's a great concern to me, and I understand that the current administration likes to move in that taxation direction. I'm not sure I can stop them moving in that direction, but heck, yeah. you know, I think we need to slow it down, certainly. You know, Carol, in a week of record profits mm -hmm. and record revenue that we're hearing from the biggest companies, it's a good reminder that the recovery has been really unequal when it comes to the big companies over the last 14 months. And then those small mom and pop shops, the bar and hospitality industry, too. Yeah, exactly. And I think we have to start making that distinction when it comes to maybe raising taxes or yeah. looking at the, the corporate sector. That's John Taffer, the host of Bar Rescue. And that wraps up the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Carol Masser. And and I'm Tim Stenovec. Be sure to tune into our Bloomberg Business Week daily show. It's Monday through Friday. It starts at 2 p.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg Radio. You can also watch our daily broadcast on YouTube. Just search Bloomberg Global News. Also, check out our Bloomberg Business Week podcast. You can find it at Bloomberg.com, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bloomberg Business Week gets available on newsstands now at Bloomberg.com and on the Bloomberg Terminal. You can also see me on Bloomberg Quick Take. It's available at Bloomberg.com slash QT and streaming platforms like Roku, Apple TV, Samsung TV, and more. Have a great weekend. This is Bloomberg.